Blog Talk Radio.
Hey, good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM, in Carborough, Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina. I'm L.A. Bachelor. We thank you for joining us. Whatever you've been doing, um, you could have been doing something else. We appreciate you checking in with us tonight. The number to reach us is 646-929-0130. You press 1 to get on the line. Our chat room is open, too. If you're online on Blog Talk, you could do it there. Uh, hit us on, up on Facebook with your questions at Pad Nation and Pad Nation 2 at Twitter. If you miss any part of the broadcast, go to our website, uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. The Bachelor News Radio Network.com. Want to go to my guest. Always a pleasure to have her on. Um, and, and one of the uh, best commissioners, I just I say that all the time, whether she's on the air or not. Uh, the uh, first African-American D1-D2 commissioner uh, in HBCUs is. She is Jackie McWilliams. And uh, Madam McWilliams, uh, we appreciate you coming on this evening and your patience. Oh, my pleasure. Always good to talk to you and, and be invited to come back. That's good. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. First and foremost, how are you personally, your family and everybody in terms of, you know, year after you know, COVID is, of course, still going on. There's places where it's sprouting up again. How are you guys doing personally? Yeah, thank you for asking. You know, we are we are well. Um, we are extremely blessed. Um, we're safe. We haven't been sick. Nobody in my immediate home um, were vaccinated. Um, you know, the beginning of the year was really tough, lost a lot of people, family, friends, um, so I, I just think, you know, we're learning to take it one day at a time and just enjoy the day and do the best that we can, honestly. I mean, and then to watch all the things that are going on in the world that impact us all personally and professionally, um, it's it's been challenging, but I, I know there's something good at the end of the road here somewhere, and I think we're just trying to stay focused as best as we can. You know, a lot of families, a lot of uh, communities have come together because of this. So, as you mentioned, in tragedy, there are some, hopefully, some brighter days um, uh, coming uh, with this. If you could take us back, I know we talked uh, sort of after it, um, you know, everything kind of shut down. But take us back when you, um, you and and all the presidents of the the universities decided to. Uh, not participate in athletics due to um, COVID-19 and what kind of went into that? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that question because it's around this time when we were trying to figure out what life was going to be like for CIAA, particularly going in the summer with programs, um, trying to get an approved budget um, with the unknowns if we were going to be able to return you know, honestly, I went into last year knowing or, or having a sense that it would be very challenging of, challenging for us to come back. And so I had already prepared my team to think outside the box on if we don't come back, what can we do? Assuming that, you know, we've got to be prepared for both scenarios. And I think that's all of us in this industry have been doing scenarios. If this happens, that happens. And when we met with our board last May, nothing, no decision regarding whether we were going to cancel or not had been determined because the, the COVID and data was still new. We knew things were rising um, and was hopeful that there would be an opportunity for somehow, some way we could come back. 
And when we got through the summer and realized, you know, the fall season was looking pretty dim, we even tried to extend it. We decided to to cancel the season, at least the fall. And we would wait until January to make a decision about basketball in spring. Um, We even talked about moving fall into spring. Um, That was challenging by itself, given the overhead and the staffing and the cost associated doing that. Now, there are a lot of leagues who are doing it. Um, And they're wore out, um, but they're making it happen, I think, for the best decision of our conference um, to cancel our winter season and then even our spring, but giving some autonomy for our spring school, our schools to to still try to play in the spring so that their athletes didn't lose two years, we would give that opportunity but not have conference championships. And honestly, it's been tough. I mean, we run championships and events. This is what we do. It's really hard to watch other sports and other leagues, um, you know, try to execute. There's been a lot of cancellations, stop and go. It's a burn. Um, But, you know, some institutions and conferences are doing it. We chose not to. And in some ways I'm glad that we did it for the health of our student athletes um, and just the concerns that we had overall for our communities. You know, uh, Madam Commissioner, it's, I applaud um, the fact that you you had not only the courage, but just to look at it from the data, but also the health part of it. Um, and then, I mean, quite frankly, I mean, just the, the economics, the loss of revenue. I mean, that, that's, let's yeah. just be real about it. Um, did, did you face any type of backlash from alum, from any of the schools, from even the student athletes? you know, other uh, conferences um, for making the decision that you guys made? You know, no. I, you know, you, you'll have a few that's a shame on them or, you know, I tried to stay off the social media aspect on that as well because even if we decided to go, there would be people who were concerned and not happy, you know, parents. I mean, I got a lot of inbox from parents, um, you know, on my accounts just saying thank you. Uh, we appreciate that decision. Then, you know, you've got some that say, you know, we should have just gave it a chance. And I think realistically, you know, to be in a position for our board, um, our membership, our athletic directors, our sports science um, professionals, senior women administrators, our coaches, our student athletes, I mean, we all we all were in the conversation. So I don't think anybody was caught off uh, by surprise in our membership. Although, of course, our coaches and student-athletes want to play and at least give it a try, I think they respected and valued the decision that we made, mostly because the conference doesn't make um, emotional, reactionary decisions. We've done that way in the past, and we've learned from my experience, I've learned that when we're reactionary and we don't take the time to communicate with all of our constituents to conclude our sponsors to understand what the impact is, um, that we don't put ourselves in a greater position. We put ourselves in a position to be prepared for the all-go and the all-not-go and the in-between. And we were on the side of the all-not-go, but still create an opportunity that great, gave great exposure for the conference and our student-athletes. We love our student-athletes. We all say that, but I, I genuinely love communicating with our student-athletes and getting their feedback. And when they say we're, we're okay, we understand, that gives me some comfort that we're doing what we're supposed to do on their behalf. 
If you're just joining us, we're talking with Jackie McWilliams, the commissioner in her ninth season, serving as the CIAA Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association commissioner, first female to serve as commissioner for the conference and first appointed African-American commissioner representing uh, D1, 2, and 3 uh, divisions. Um, it, you know, a lot of the coaches I've had on, Madam Commissioner, not just in, in your conference, but in the MEAC and some of them, and they talked about the anxiety. They talked about, wow, it's mm-hmm. been 20 years or whatever. I haven't coached. I haven't been on the court. I haven't been, you know, and then they consoling and going through the process with the student athletes. Was there a sense of anxiety of getting back and, and having that plan in place? And then, and we'll get to what what's going on now, but having that plan in place and then saying, well, you know, let's, Let's hope and pray it does go right. And, and you know, what about sort of the, uh, the the counseling, if you will? Because, I mean, just whether you're a student athlete or if you're L.A. bachelor yeah. and you're closed in, there's a sense yeah. of, like, getting back to normal. So was it a lot of those type of um, resources available to the student athletes? Yeah, you know, we we are blessed to have a, a great group of, not group, but individual consultants. You know, our our diversity inclusion equity committee, um, head, headed by our consultant Evan Capel with uh, Return of Inclusion. She's been with us for the last five or six years. Jessica on our staff. She leads our student athlete advisory committee. Meets with them monthly, and meets with our president Bianca Lockney, who is um, a student athlete at Virginia Union, and also on the NCAA Division II SAC committee. And having communication with her, you know, our students are just, they're incredible. I mean, they, they, understand their, they understand the mental health aspect of not playing. And I would tell you, um, I, I've been challenged, too. Um, I've been playing the game since I was 18 in college, way before, but I've never not known not having the opportunity to play, to coach, or to even execute an event like mm. this. And so, you know, all of us, our administrators, our presidents, I mean, imagine leading your university, and athletics is just one component of safety of, of right. a population that you're trying to help me navigate on what's the best decision for all of our student athletes that can impact your own campuses. And our coaches, part of our return of inclusion or our, our EDI group, we have coaches on there, representation, student athletes, one of our presidents, and they've been meeting, and we have put together this mind, body, and soul that started, I think, two weeks ago. But prior to that, last summer, we had things that were going on too with voting registration. We've been able to really do some collaboration work with outside organizations, with our student athletes, with our coaches, giving them the opportunity in this field time to get leadership uh, development through True North Sports. So we have invested some of our dollars to help support their leadership and coaching experience while they're sitting idle and still have access to those opportunities. So mental health, absolutely. I think all of us are like, this is not happening. The mental health of stopping and going, if you are playing, um, is detrimental as well. And so I think the true balance is, as some of our student athletes said, how do you take advantage of this moment now? We may not be playing right now, but what is it that you can do that still will make the difference in your lives of your family, on, in your opportunity to get your education, 
and then prepare to come back when that time happens because right now we're not playing. And so I think giving them those skills and being creative as a conference, how do we work as a community to help each other? This is the time. We don't have time to go back and forth and be bitter and be mad. Like we need to stick together and really pull each other up in these times. Great point. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people were uh, talking about, and you mentioned, Madam, is that uh, all of the social, the climate we're in, you mentioned the getting out the vote, and and I know you have your um, your corporate sponsors that, that help out with that. And yeah. But, you know, are you guys, have you been pushing get the get vaccinated uh, are, is that part of mm-hmm. the the message that you are putting out whether it be public service throughout the CIAA or otherwise yeah you know we did a lot more of that during we did we're doing a lot more education i think it is not and encouraging um by doing these seminars so the tournament the virtual tournament was really our greatest opportunity on this mind body and soul which we're having those conversations in these in the seminars and the summits that we're having over the next five to six months. I can't remember how long it is, but there will be components. We have some of our partners, um, Novant Health has come, doctors across the country, you know, regionally, partnering with Baltimore. Um, they had sessions dealing with health, financial literacy, all those things that impact our community. And so the health component I think April Ryan did a session during our tournament, virtual tournament in real live conversations with doctors and professionals on the ground, giving advice, encouraging us, and even a doctor saying, I haven't take it, taken it, and I'm not sure I'm going to take it. So you're talking about authentic conversation from a health professional, and a lot of us was like, wow. So I think, you know, opening up the door, creating spaces for the dialogue is important and allowing people to determine what is best for them. I was hesitant initially, and then I decided to do it. I have a daughter who's 15. She has asthma, um, you know, and I don't want to have any – and I don't go out that much, but I do think we are examples and leaders in getting our vaccines, but also getting – pointing people in the right direction to get the right information so they can make decisions for themselves. I'm glad you said that. That's uh, that's real talk because a lot of people say when you take a side and say, yeah, get vaccinated, and you know, and you, you take some form of political stance. But like you, you know, I, I'm type 2 diabetic, your daughter's with the asthma. So you have to kind of make those decisions. And I think it's responsible for us to, it, it's our responsibility to, yeah. to point those things out. Where people go yeah. and do it, you know, is is their call. But yeah. pointing that out, I think it's real uh, real important. I won't hold you long. We're just talking with, no, um, uh, okay, Commissioner Jackie McWilliams here on the uh, the Bassett News Radio Show. Uh, maybe going backwards a little bit. What are the things that are in place on the campuses in terms of the precautions, in terms of the safeties, um, as you move forward to um, sports here in 2021? Yeah, we have a lot of, um, we've got some planning to do this summer. The good thing is that we had created our PPE planning, um, uh, sports planning, championship planning, budget planning, 
we have all of that, those templates. All we know is that things continue to change daily, information that we receive from the NCAA on protocols. We have put those together. We will spend time in the next two or three months. Hopefully by, by July 1, we'll know exactly where it is and what it is that we're going to be doing moving forward. We know our championship sites. Um, but the big thing for us when we get back into, if you want to call it full swing, what does that look like and what can we manage? Will we have fans, not have fans? Will venues allow for capacity, some capacity? You know, what will testing look like, although – a lot of our universities have practice in this already. They have students on their campus, campuses. I'm really proud of our 12-member our institutions and the leadership of our 12 presidents. They are no joke, no nonsense. They're learning from me. I'm learning from them. They care about the students, and they want to make sure that if we're going to be if we're going to move and get ready for this upcoming year, that we do have those necessary protocols in place to protect their campuses, but also um, to make sure that, that we are protecting the community that we're serving in. And so we'll get there. Um, I think my team is excited. Um, they're tired of being virtual experience experts. Um, we're ready to get on the ground and do the work that we, that we came here to do for conference athletics. But we also will be watching the trends, and we'll also be mindful of the data, and we'll also continue to communicate and work with our, our membership to make sure that when we're ready to go, if we have to delay, that we're prepared to do so. We're responding and not reacting, um, but we're prepared to manage whatever the decisions are made moving forward. Uh, I know it's it's no easy task. I guess my my <laughs> next question, uh, a couple more, but my next question is kind of bundled into three. What what have you learned? Uh, what do you feel like you got right, and what do you feel maybe you guys, you know, even again, this is ongoing, that you could have maybe done differently. I mean, I, I honestly believe that we did a lot more right see that we would have done anything differently. I, I do believe that we paced ourselves in our decision. What I'm really glad that we did is although we watched what was happening around us and was trying to learn from others, at the end of the day, we made the best decision for the CIAA and no other entity. Um, we knew what decisions were being made at the national level, regional level, con other conferences. But when the conversation came to the board and to my team and to our membership, the dialogue was always what is in the best interest for the CIAA, understanding that there could be some losses and were we prepared to take that. And honestly, we've been through a lot of different stuff and have had losses. And somehow the grace of this conference and the blessings of this conference, we continue to prosper and even through COVID, we, we ended up doing pretty well this year. Partners engaged in the virtual experience. I'm so glad that we – I'm so glad I put the seed out there for my team and, and got them to think about what that vision could look like over the summer because I said if the board does not approve us having winter championships, we need to be prepared to activate. We cannot go silent in February when this event, is one of the major events that connects our community to the broader world. And so we did it. And so I think we did a lot of good stuff right, L.A. I, I, there's nothing that I would take back except COVID would go away and we could go full-fledged. But the way that we communicated and come together have gotten real creative with 
Sports Network and Talk Show, um, the virtual, the leadership development program. I think we did a really good job this year. I'm really proud of my of the conference, the membership, and my staff for just trusting in our leadership and managing the expectations that we didn't even know what they were going to be. Right, trial and error, but you know, like you said, um, it's it's been a, a blessing, and I, 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 you know, followed a lot of virtual stuff, um, <laughs> with in particular with the uh, uh, the the basketball tourney. Speaking of twenty twenty one, what is this looking like uh, moving forward? Are 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 you ready now for um, the season 21 going into 22 basketball, some of the fall sports. What is it looking at shaping now, even the summer stuff at this point? Yeah, we're excited about, I mean, we're, we're trying. So interestingly, we're working on doing a spring celebration for all of our seniors. Um, my team and student athletes have been working on this, so I have no idea what it's going to turn out to be, but I'm excited about, you know, the challenge that we have amongst our institutions to really celebrate us just getting through this year in COVID. That's what we do. We can celebrate even when it feels like they're not the greatest times. This summer we'll spend time on getting ready for football. I'm not sure about um, – well, I'm sure there's a hope that we will have our leadership program for our student athletes, whether that's virtual or in place. With football coming around, football media day, not sure what that's looking like. But if we're going to have football, we will do something to highlight these athletes coming in volleyball and cross country. So we're going in regular planning. I can tell you my uh, championships and event staff, they are way ahead of schedule, way ahead of time. So they're just waiting for the go. Um, but I think the bigger piece for us is the safety. You know, will we have or, or will to make sure that we have all those things in place so that when we do go, my staff, those fans, our student athletes, our coaches, everyone feels like they are safe and um, and we have the proper protocols in place to manage that. So we're excited. The tournament, we're planning to go to Baltimore. Again, we have to vet out all of what that looks like, whether the entire venue or and again, it's all about data. It's all about state um, state policies and and what they're allowing. And so we'll stay in tune um, with all of our states. We have, you know, our schools are across five different states, so or four different states. So we have to be mindful of what the state protocols are, as well as we're implementing our championships. Yeah, and I guess my final question is two part. It has has. Um... Has it affected the sort of getting your your feet on solid ground in Baltimore? Um, I know you already had, you know, made the decision, made the move, but then here comes COVID and it kind of knocks you upside the head a little bit. Has it affected it uh, in terms of the logistics? And then the other part of it, I guess, would be is if you get in these situations, we saw uh, at the the D1 level, and I, if I'm not mistaken either, also some of the other the other levels that – where schools, if they if they tested, if any of their players or coaches tested positive, they had a backup school to come and play in the tournament. Is this something that you guys would again, you know, playing it by ear, really, um, would consider, or something along those lines? God forbid something does happen in one of your your major championships. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the conversation. You know, if you know the, let's say the the COVID increase in a certain state, 
and they're not able to play. Will we continue to move forward? That was a conversation that we had in this previous year. Um, this previous, this past year was real important for the board. They wanted to make sure whatever decision was made that we did it collectively as a conference. We didn't have any one-offs. Um, but we'll see what that conversation is in our May meeting and over the summer as we move forward. Right now, I think everyone's intent is that we're able to move forward. And like you said, if, if one of the teams or two of the teams, something happens, we'll have some protocol or backup to manage that. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of time and it takes um, people, our teams, to work together to, to manage what's going to happen if the if, right, if this happens, then what happens? And so I think we'll be prepared to take care of those scenarios if, if that's, if, you know, if our hands are tied in that way. Our hope is that, you know, this COVID thing will, I say thing, because, you know, they've honestly have said this, we're probably two years, two years, which seems like a long time. Now we're in a year. And just to think about not this year for one more year doesn't feel good. So we're going to do the best that we can and provide the best that we can for these student athletes that want to play. And really the institutions, you know, they got to get through seasons. You can't have a championship if you don't have any games played during the season. So to make sure that they have what they need on their campuses to manage, you know, regular season play, minimum requirements, maximum requirements, those all have been adjusted, may be adjusted again, working with the NCAA. So there's a lot for us to think about coming into this fall season, which may not be a regular season that we've had in the past. Well, you got your hands full, but uh, I know the conference is in good hands uh, with you, Madam Commissioner, and uh, we appreciate you and Nine Season doing a phenomenal job. Of course, a two-sport athlete at Hampton, and like you said, you played the game and coached, and now you're in this position, and COVID is kind of wars down, but it's, uh, let's, we're just praying it's a, a great light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for taking the time out. Uh, with us today, and we'll have you on again. We appreciate you. You be well, okay? Oh, thank you, and you be well, too. God bless. God bless. Thank you so much. Always good to have Commissioner Jackie McWilliams of the CIAA Conference on. Um, as I mentioned, you know, in her ninth season, taking over a situation, and then you know, moving to Baltimore, here comes COVID, and you know, now you got these decisions to make, and then from all accounts the people that I've talked to on both sides of the should they play or not play, you look at the other conferences and the challenges and people getting sick, both players, I mean, student athletes and coaches, and then they decided, you know, safety first. And I'll be honest with you folks, I've been saying safety first since this thing came out. Uh, and that's no no being rude or disrespectful to any of the conferences and, and institutions decide to play. But as a parent, I, I don't want my kid to play. So, um, you know, a lot of respect, big ups uh, to um, Madam Commissioner, her staff, and what the um, Central Intergollegiate Athletic uh, uh, Conference uh, has done, uh, the CIAA has done, in the midst of this horrific pandemic. Take a break. It is the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network and WCOM in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Stay tuned.
going very far. It's too uncomfortable. I'm in a hurry. Sometimes I just forget. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. You're not only putting yourself at risk of injury or death, it could also cost you lots of money. Cops are writing tickets, so why take the risk? Do the smart thing and start buckling up every trip, day or night. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. The Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network at WCOM, Chapel Hill, Carborough. Don't forget, if you miss any part of our broadcast, you can go to our website and listen to the entire broadcast at uh, the Bastion News Radio Show page right at the top. You click on it. It'll show all the interviews, like my next one. Um, and you can listen and hopefully be informed and enjoy, certainly from the guests, including a guest I have on now. Uh, from Cascade Publishing House. He's a publisher, award-winning author. And folks, you, at the end of this interview, you got to make sure we, we, I have to make sure you have his information. So he's got just articles that you could think of. I mean, it was seven of them I wanted to talk to, but I wanted to focus in on uh, baseball tonight uh, because he's definitely uh, very informed with HBCU base, baseball in general. But I mean, he talked about uh, a lot of social issues, racial issues. We'll get into all of that as the days go on. But Harold Mar- Michael Harvey, I appreciate your patience on the line, and I appreciate you coming on as always, sir. Oh, L.A., I appreciate you having me on, give me an opportunity to uh, meet and greet new people, new friends. So um, thank you for the honor, sir. Absolutely. So, you know, we had a conversation myself, uh, you myself, and uh, and 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 Tony McLean about uh, baseball, the love of the game. Um, I know Michael Coker talks about how HBCU baseball, or, or black baseball, if you will, goes back to the 1800s and and you know even further, you know, back in the other pro sports when you you look at the greatness and the talent that have played this game. You look at the Lou Brocks and Andre Dawson's who have been, you know, um, HBCU products have gone on to have great careers and Hall of Famers and things. And now you have uh, these series, I call them, you know, um, uh, along with the Black House Nine, who I know you work with and, and um, mm-hmm. 
the other organization uh, that are highlighting these kids. They're highlighting these kids. They're highlighting these institutions. How much, how significant is this in this era when everybody wants to shoot the three or score a touchdown for them to have like the Black College World Series? It's coming up um, in nine days from now and, and, and other uh, different, you know, highlights and showcases, I call them the games, but they showcase in the talent of the players in these mm-hmm. schools. How significant is it for this to ha- happen in this day and age? Well, it's very significant uh, for for uh, there to be this resurgent interest in black college baseball. The first black college baseball game was played uh, over at the Atlanta University Center back in 18 game between uh, Clark College and Atlanta University. Uh, and in the 1990s, about 100 years after they played that inaugural black college baseball game, um, Atlanta University and Clark College uh, merged and, and became one university, Clark Atlanta University. But that was uh, the first black college baseball game. And, of course, the Southern Collegiate Athletic Conference, the SEAC, came into being uh, when Tuskegee started playing baseball in 1892 uh, Morris Brown then came in a little bit later. South Carolina State came in, and then Alabama State came in. So they formed a an athletic conference to help schedule the baseball games between those two schools. And a year later, I believe in 1914, uh, they formally um, organized the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. So what is now a major D2 football conference started out as a baseball conference. That's how deep the roots run. Now, uh, why it's important for this resurgence now is somewhere in the 1990s, uh, this myth began that, well, maybe it wasn't a myth. Black kids, for for some reason, were not going into uh, baseball beyond age 12 or 13. And so the... um, I think what really took my notice uh, was in the mid-90s, I saw where Howard University had a baseball team, but majority of the kids on that team were white ballplayers, and the coach said it was because he could not recruit uh, black ballplayers. There was just not enough interest among black kids to play baseball. And so what has happened in in the um, 25 years um since we saw that phenomenon begin um, at Howard, uh, is that when you look at the face of um, black college baseball, you primarily have white faces in dugouts. So uh, black baseball, black college baseball teams are comprised mostly of white players and Latino players uh, and very few uh, black players. Uh, many of the coaches now at HBCUs or white coaches and of course they recruit white players and they also hire uh, white assistant coaches so um, not only are black African Americans losing scholarship uh, and and um, roster spots uh, at your traditional HBCUs uh, also those coaches are beginning to, to lose those spots 
so back in the uh, about 2010, um, Jay Sokol, uh, you know, white kid out of um, uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, had an interest in uh, the SWAC when he was a kid growing up. He loved SWAC sports, the football, the basketball, and the baseball. He particularly had an interest in baseball. He had coached baseball on the uh, collegiate level at one point. And so he started researching um, black college baseball, and he started the Black College Nine. A couple of years after he started, he uh, noticed that I had played baseball at Tuskegee, and he knew of some of, the, of my teammates, and he reached out to me. And so that is how I get pulled into uh, Black College Nine, where I today write feature stories about uh, black college uh, baseball. So for me, the to have this newfound interest in the game is very important because um, not only in Major League Baseball are we losing black American uh, baseball players, there's 6.8% of all uh, roster spots in Major League Baseball uh, are held by uh, black Americans. Um, I think there are about 12% Latinos and about 3.8% Asian. You know, so the Asian population has really been growing in Major League Baseball. And if the trend continues, that upward trend continues, and the downward spiral of the number of uh, black Americans in Major League Baseball continues, in about five years you'll have more Asian players in Major League Baseball than you'll have black American players. So that's why I think it's important to have this newfound interest uh, among a variety of people in college, uh, in black college baseball. If you're just joining us, talk with Michael Harvey here on the Bastion News Radio Show and the Bastion News Radio Network and WCOM and Carborough Chapel Hill. You bring up a great point, Mr. Harvey. When you look at uh, the percentages of, of black ball players uh, making up the HBCU rosters, we're not even talking about PWIs, right? We're talking HBCUs, and then. Right. You add, I, I posed a question to, to Michael Coker, and I pose it to you, and I know you said, well, you got to make up the rosters, but what do you say to people who feel like, you know, HBCU baseball is sort of a microcosm of HBCUs, period, where um, they're becoming more of a melting pot, and there's some concern out there that, HBCU baseball teams, just like HBCUs, will lose their identity. Why are they there? Remember why they were created and so on and so forth. What do you say to those people? How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I, I'm an alumnus of a, a HBCU, I, and I've attended two HBCUs. I, I spent my freshman year at Fort Valley State College, where I played baseball, uh, for a year, my freshman year. They no longer play baseball at Fort Valley State. Uh, um, and then, of course, I played at Tuskegee. So um, I, I'm, I believed HBCU. I love all of them. I mean, you know, when, on the baseball field, of course, uh, I root for uh, Tuskegee. I root for anybody that Tuskegee is playing. I root against anybody that Tuskegee is playing. But I love all HBCUs because they, they serve a significant um, uh, place, you know, in not only the African-American uh, history and culture, but also in the, in the culture of this country. 
um, because they were founded uh, in order to serve as an educational um, outlet for black Americans, particularly coming out of slavery. You know, our great, great grand um, uh, parents understood one, they understood two things coming out of slavery. Number one, we got to go find our kinfolk that's been sold off. And number two, we need to, we need schools to educate uh, our children into this new culture. And so uh, you sort of see the blending of this, uh, of, of this um, uh, HBCUs into the uh, melting pot of, uh, you know, being uh, a graduate of, um, of, of Tuskegee. I hate to see um, the pride of the swift growing South go that way because uh, it it serves a significant purpose in the black community. And I hope that the larger society uh, will wake up one day and, and not be biased and prejudiced against people of black skin, but that day hasn't come. And, and, and so, so we always need home to be able to come back to. And, and so also let me sort of try to dispel a myth that's sort of wrapped up in the way you frame that question, and that is there's this myth that black kids are no longer playing baseball, but they are. Right. Um, I see them every summer. You know, for instance, Atlanta is a hotbed of black baseball talent. You know, you have uh, the Atlanta Metro RBI team uh, is very strong. You have a lot of input from former professional baseball players who have settled in Atlanta, like Marvin Freeman, uh, Marquise Grisson, Antonio Grisson, Marquise brother who played minor league ball but didn't make it to the big dance. Um, uh, you've got Hank Aaron Jr., who's a, a uh, for the Atlanta Braves, who who is scouring uh, the HBCUs, uh, looking for this outstanding um, baseball talent. You know, and uh, and you've got this MVP tournament that is hosted by a group of gentlemen in the from in the Cap County here in in uh, the metropolitan Atlanta area. They've been doing that since uh, the turn of the century, uh, where they come together every every summer. Uh, except for last year because of, of COVID. And they bring teams in from California, from Detroit, uh, from Chicago, from uh, the Tidewater area in Virginia, um, you know, Texas. Uh, and and uh, I, I see those kids, and there's some very – there's some good talent. Now, uh, five years ago, what I noticed about the kids playing baseball at the uh, collegiate level, they're very small players. Our bigger players were still opting for football and basketball. But in the last three years, I have seen the size of the players increase. So now you've got, uh, we have six foot three to six foot five, uh, uh, 225, 230 pound kids who are now playing baseball. And those are the, they have the physical uh, strength and stature to uh, really be impact players uh, in Major League Baseball. So uh, what I saw happening in the 1990s is no longer happening. Kids have, black kids have come back to baseball, and they have begun to come back uh, in terms of size-wise. 
kids that could make an impact at the ne- at the next level uh, are beginning to play this game. Uh, but the roster spots uh, at HBCUs uh, uh, are being taken away from them. They don't have that opportunity. And that's the other thing about this melting pot, okay? So these schools and these athletic programs were designed for kids who couldn't play at, at their D1 schools um, throughout the country, by and large. Um, and, and, you know, so when the integration, you're probably old enough to remember when uh, the southern colleges and universities began to recruit black players, and you, you would have one or two on the team. Uh, you would have one or two on the team on those northern teams and the, and, and the east and west coast teams that would come south sometime uh, and play. Um, you know, but but I guess in the last 30 years, um, those collegiate rosters are um, filled up now with with black uh, football and basketball players. Uh, still, they don't recruit them to play baseball. There's something about baseball being a white man's game that, uh, like golf, that uh, blacks have not really been able to break that code and, and break into um, – to that aspect of, uh, of, of professional athletics and, and also collegiate and high school athletics. I receive emails and calls from parents throughout the country uh, who live in places where there are not a large concentration of African-Americans. They tell me, Mr. Harvey, what can I do? My son is at this high school and, you know, they don't play black kids and my he's a shortstop and, they put them in the outfield when they do play in. Um, those are things I experienced as an integrator. I integrated the junior high school in my hometown. And I, I know what they're telling me happens because it happened to me in the 1960s uh, in a white setting. And and uh, But to hear that that is still playing, taking place in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, I mean, it shouldn't be, but it still is. Um, you know, so I don't know that I want to see the melting pot. I, I want those. I want a, a black kid who has the the interest in going to an HBCU uh, to play baseball. I like to see him be able to go to those schools and play and uh, perform. It almost sounds like um, you know what you're saying, Mr. Harvey. That you know we see a lot of these kids um, go to PWIs because they think. Um, they're going to get better exposure when it comes to football and basketball. And then now we've seen the Deion Sanders and other people trying to bring those kids back into recruiting and then all those type of things. And then baseball is the opposite. You have these white kids that are trying to, they may have, may not be good enough or they may not have be able to fill a roster spot at a Alabama. So they go to Tuskegee. Uh, to get an opportunity, and that does take the spot. And I don't see anything wrong with people pointing that out, um, you know, because that is, uh, again, knowing the identity and the reason why we weren't allowed, so we did our own. So I don't see any wrong with that. Let me ask you this. You can comment on that, but let me ask you this too. Um, how significant and how important is it to have that face that looks like us, either a coach or player, that are doing really well being successful um to to help in the recruiting of the kids that may be looking at a texas a&m rather than 
of Texas Southern when it comes to the, to baseball or something along those lines. I mean, you know, my sons, you know, they, you know, teams, they, they see again, the touchdown and the three pointer and trying to get them into baseball. They just, they're not gravitating to it. Maybe I didn't do a good job at, you know, selling the, the product, but, but how is the face and the talent have to shine for more kids? I know they're going that way, but more additional kids, let's say, to gravitate to the sport. Uh, you know, the face of the coach uh, says a lot. Um, but but more important than the face, I, I think it, well, in any recruiting process, you know, when you come into a, a parent's home, Basically, what a coach is saying to that parent is, give me your son for the next four years, and uh, I'll take care of him. And, and, and typically, parents will, will give a nod to that person who they feel is going to take care of their child for those four years, you know, whether that's a white face or a black face. It really doesn't matter. So, so, um, uh, but if you don't have the, the, the black coaches and the recruiters being able to go out and, and to to scout these kids, um, you know, they'll never know that there's an opportunity for them to go over here. Uh, sort of like on this question about why do you have the, the whites uh, who who will play in a, uh, in a D1 school, D1 HBCU, or even in a uh, D2 HBCU? They know that if they play um, college baseball, that scouts – you know, not as many at the D1 schools at the Alabama, at Arkansas, or Florida State, or Georgia Tech. Not as many are going to show up during your games, but there are opportunities for you to, to get scouted. Um, and so if you go to an HBCU, if you're a white kid and you play two years and you end up with a even a free agent contract if you're not drafted, uh, you know, you, you've met that goal. You met, you have one step closer to that dream of playing playing major league baseball, you know, so they will um, will forego the fact or overlook the fact that this is traditionally a black college in order to, to go and play baseball. Uh, and they're only on campus to play baseball. You know, that's not part of the, of the culture, the social fabric of those schools. And the other kids probably even know they're on campus. And that whole world is between the dormitory and, the place where they have their get their meals and the uh, baseball diamond for their workouts. Um, you know, so um, I, I'm just uh, uh, maybe it's because I was I was uh, educated at an HBCU uh, and I can't maybe I, there's a bigger picture out there that I can't see, um, but I I just know that those schools uh, serve a particular purpose. You know. Tuskegee came about. We often hear that Booker T. Washington was the founder of Tuskegee. Well, that's a myth. That's not true. Tuskegee came about because in the election of 1880, there were two white Democratic state state legislators, one uh, who represented Macon County, Alabama, in the House of Representatives, in Alabama House, and one who represented uh, his district, senatorial district, covered Macon County, Alabama, uh, in the in the uh, Alabama Senate. And so, as you know, coming out of slavery, blacks voted Republican because that was the party of Lincoln. That was a, And the Republican Party pushed 
um, the abolition of slavery. Um, you know, so that so um, that's where the votes were going. And so these two legislators didn't want to be replaced. They saw the the Republicans coming to steamroll Macon County, Alabama, where Tuskegee uh, University is located. So they went uh, to the a, a a businessman who had a shop, a black guy who had a shop on the town square. He was a mulatto. He'd grown up in his white master's house, and he learned Latin and French and geometry and and so forth when the, the tutors came by to tutor his white sisters. And, of course, he had the reign to run around the plantation, and he would go over and see what the blacksmith was doing and, and what the guys who made the collars for the horses were and the mules were doing. He learned all those trades and such his own shop after slavery. So when they came to him, to buy his vote, they said, well, what do you want in exchange for um, for uh, your support? And he said, well, the children in Tuskegee need a school. And that's how we get the famous Tuskegee Institute that has educated, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, in the world since 1881. That's mm. how it came about. Because uh, Lewis Adams understood that, that this next generation of kids, the second generation of kids since enslavement, needed a school to be educated to be able to deal uh, in in this American society. And most of all of the schools during that period of time came into being for the same reason. Black kids needed a school because because you know it was against the law during slavery time to. Um, for, for a black person to read. And even if you were to call teaching a black person to read, you know, that white person would be punished. You know, so, um, you know, so these schools serve a very special and unique um, place in American culture and history. And uh, we should never forget that. And, and we should never tarnish um, though the the reason those schools came into existence. Although I know the world has changed. We're not in eighteen eighty. The world is a is changing and it is ever changing and we are at an inflection point right at this moment. Depends upon what happens in Minneapolis, um, Minnesota in the next few days. Um you know, but, in- uh, uh, yes. I was going to say, Mr. Harvey, just uh, <laughs> I to sit here and listen to you historically and, and in terms of how you you shape the narrative of, uh, in particular, you know, how the schools and, and even your alma mater uh, came came about, of course, uh, a, a post-Civil uh, War, of course, uh, what you're talking about, 1880. Um, it, it's, it's funny you should mention that with uh, George Floyd and then, of course, the other um, murder, right, of Deontay, of mm-hmm, right. there in in Minneapolis, baseball jumped in the fray by taking the All-Star game, Major League Baseball, of course, taking the All-Star game away from Atlanta. Uh, this is the year they wanted to celebrate, and of course, we'll continue to, to celebrate, I think, the, the greatest hitter of all time, Hank Aaron. And I mean, mm-hmm. uh, arguably, um, and they said, you know what? 
and I said this with Tony and I and some other people were talking about like, you know, um, some geeky guys or someone who's doing the math and doing the numbers and looking at it from a broader scale said, we need to be proactive for or against this thing. And they decided they're against it in terms of staying in Atlanta playing this all-star game and moving it based on the climate of the, the voter suppression, if you will, there mm-hmm. with Stacey Abrams and everything that's going on in, in your state of Georgia. So, was 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 baseball right to do this um and how impactful it is i know i've had some people on said you know it's going to hurt minority businesses and all these different things which you can debate but uh, are they are, are they right in in putting their foot into this thing and I mean, we've seen this all the time, Juan, uh, John Carlos and the Olympics. and I mean, Ali, we can go on and on. Sports has always been a microcosm in being involved with social change. So w- what say you about what baseball did? They did the right thing. They did the right thing. Who spoke out against it? What player on the Atlanta Braves uh, spoke out against Major League Baseball removing the game? But Marvin, um, Marvin, who's the first baseman? I can't, you know, his last name eludes me. He spoke out. Right, I knew. Mm-hmm. Guess what? How many black players, how many black Americans are on the Atlanta Braves baseball team? And by the way, the Braves put out a statement after baseball, too, I'm sure you were familiar with, that really was very lukewarm. And, and AKA, we we didn't appreciate this. We don't like it. Right. Our fans didn't put that kind of thing out. Right. They have no black players. They have no African-American players on the Atlanta Braves baseball team. When I tell you that they are 6.8%, those are about 18, excuse me, 1918 numbers. 6.8%. I don't know what it was in 19. 20 was, you know, a different year uh, because of, of, of COVID. But in 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 19 in 2018 numbers, that was 6.8% black Americans in Major League Baseball. Atlanta has zero. They have about five uh, Latino players, and they are very good young players. I'm not taking anything away from the Latin players, you know, um, I have participated with the Atlanta RBI. We, we've taken uh, kids from Atlanta uh, and equipment from Unzuno to Puerto Rico in order to support uh, baseball in Puerto Rico. You know, so I, I'm not, I don't have any problem with, with Latino players coming here and playing the game and making money, but black American players ought to be in the league too. But Major League Baseball did the right thing. Now we talk about it's going to hurt minority-owned businesses and black businesses and blah, 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 blah. Well, uh, progress does hurt. When you stand up for what's right, it does hurt. I mean, in order to get the Voting Rights Act, John Lewis took a blow to the head. Hosea Williams took a, a blow to the head. Amelia Boynton took a blow to the head. Martin Luther King Jr. took a bullet to the head. That hurts. So there's always pain involved. There's always hurt involved when you get out to do 
what's right, to improve the condition. So we all have to be willing uh, to make the sacrifice. Those people made the, made the sacrifice in order to change that uh, segregated system that we have been under since uh, 1890, 1896. So it hurts. And, and, so and to, to, to your point, to you, I was going to say to your point, Mr. Harvey, you can continue, that whenever the oppressor is um, exposed in a manner of this, um, we always told to stand down or let's work through the system or whatever, whatever. We always got to acquiesce in these type of situations. Baseball, no different. And as you said, it's, it's no surprise, zero surprise that the Braves would take this stance. It's shocking though, that in a year of their greatest ball player passing on, that they will even come out like that. You know, you don't even have any yeah. black ball player that to our, our 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 cousins, you know, our brown cousins. Uh, I get it, like you said, it's nothing against them. But if you don't have any black ball players and your greatest player was black that just passed on, why would you take a stand like that? It makes no sense. No, what's up? And it's important for 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 us when I say us for for black Georgians to have this right to vote. I mean the 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 Republicans have been rough, running roughshod over this state and over the uh, freedoms of black Georgians for the last twenty one years. They came into power in in two, in two thousand, and and uh, the state has not been the same since. You know, they, they will away at everything, and, and they tax you. Um, every year they go into session, they're raising taxes, making it more difficult for the for the average Georgian uh, to live comfortably. Uh, you, you know, and so last year and also in January of this year, you know, the, the black electorate looked at the system. You know, so Stacia says, here's the system. Here's a way that you can vote. Um, and, and you don't even have to leave your home during the pandemic. And so taking the rules as they existed, you know, black people outvoted the conservatives in this state and uh, elected two Democratic congressmen, something that had not been done uh, in this century. You know, so, so, um, so, uh, you know, I, I applaud Major League Baseball for taking the game away. I wish the game was here, particularly, you know, that could, that would, I'm sure would have been a tremendous uh, tribute to Hank Aaron during the uh, All-Star game. Um, right. But it'll come back when Georgia, when Georgia comes back to its senses, you know, then we'll get these opportunities. You know, you've had, had uh, Will Smith and Apple uh, who was doing a movie with Will Smith, uh, they pulled out. They announced last week that they would not make that movie here in Atlanta. You know, so that's the first one. Now, you know, Tyler Perry, you know, he's got to step up. He's got to step up. And, uh, and I'm, I'm getting, and I'm, I am, and I'm getting emails, Mr. Harvey, not to cut you off, the people are uh, saying, you know, well, tell that to, you know, the, the person that owns a business around the baseball 
field for the All Star game. And listen, I I'll just for for me, I I get it as as a broadcaster trying to you know present this on my own. I get it, um, but I, but I also have said for years on and off the air, Mr. Harvey, that at the end of the day, you got to look yourself in the mirror. You got to look yourself in the mirror. And yeah. if if you can't be winning this, this is, a, this is a game. You got the one team on one side, one team on the other. What side do you on? That's where we're at. You have to choose a side. Um, and, you know, I've heard a lot of people, too, Mr. Harvey said that baseball will be hit hard with this. The the backlash from the fans, those fans, they put fans in quotes, white fans, I'm sure they say, that are going to be, you know, this is Colin Kaepernick all over again, maybe to a lesser degree. But, but do you think they'll take a hit like that? And if so, you know, I mean, they're standing on, they might be doing it because it looks good and, you know, it's the climate, but at the end of the day, it's still the right thing to do. Well, you know, the baseball's clientele is a white clientele. You know, you have, going back to the numbers again, 6.8% of players are, are black American players. So so black Americans are not going to baseball. They're not going to the baseball park to watch Major League Baseball because they don't see people who represent them, who look like them, on those clubs. Uh, you know, where you have large uh, Latino communities in uh, in these urban centers throughout America, they are going to the ballpark because they are cheering on their countrymen who are out there playing it, and rightfully so. You know, so, uh, yes, baseball may take a hit, but I think one thing Major League Baseball and all professional sports learned uh, last year is that you, you don't really need to put fans in the stands in order to continue to make your money. All you really need is for television to continue continue to uh, broadcast, and so you make your money on the, the television revenue. And that may be where the game is going anyway. Uh, if, if you notice, so a few years ago, the Atlanta Stadium, they moved out of downtown Atlanta into uh, Cobb, neighboring Cobb, Cobb. County, just Right, just across the uh, city limits of Atlanta into Cobb County, uh, and so the stadium that they left seated, I believe, fifty-five thousand people, and the stadium they built in Cobb only seats forty-one. So, so that's the trend. They're not building these uh, monstrous uh, stadiums any longer, where they want to pack in sixty thousand folks, because they realize that you don't need sixty thousand. To make your money, you you know you've got your merchandising that can be sold online these days, and um, uh, and your television reven- revenue, so you don't have to pack a bunch of people in the stands. So yes, uh, some people will not go, but that's not going to hurt the overall business of baseball. And I'm pretty sure that the commissioner, um, you know, crunched the numbers because he he knows just like you and I know that black Americans are not on these teams. And so the fan base that, that he is supporting, um, they're not on those teams anyway. So the right. people who come out to see the game are white Americans. So there is a potential that they will lose some money there. But I think Major League Baseball, as 
as the NBA and, and the soccer leagues uh, have learned is that, um, you know, the money is, the, the money can really be made in the future uh, on your television revenue and that you don't necessarily need to pack people into the stands in order to um, have a su- successful uh, business franchise. And, you know, I, I don't care what people say about the people who have businesses around the stadium. We all are in this state together. So if the, if the government is going to infringe upon my right to vote, and, and which, which means that there are things that I, as a senior uh, Georgian, may not get because they will vote against what's in my best interest and that people who uh, would probably look out for the things that I'm interested in can't get in power because they don't have the votes to get there. I'm sorry. We all are going to have to suck it up and suffer a little bit. And, and you, know, you know, the thing is, it really don't last long if, you, if we stay united. We can overcome this. You know, the governor is going around saying, oh, it's going to hurt minority businesses. Does he really care about minority businesses? Just like exactly. whoever's writing the emails. Whoever's writing those emails, you're supporting what, what, what the governor of the state of Georgia is running around telling folks. Because he, he wants you to put pressure on Major League Baseball to bring that game back and so that other businesses don't leave either. But, but you know, about 100 corporations here in the last week or so have met and discussed uh, this voting rights thing in Georgia, and they are, they are in lockstep. They are supporting the move of Major League Baseball. They are also uh, working to see what they can do um, in, in, in order to create a legislature and an executive branch in Georgia that will do away with this voter suppression. You know, so, yeah, yeah. people are going to hurt. If we all just suck it up and stay unified, it'll, it will win. We will win. And so just think and, about all the money you're going to make when, it come, when, 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 the, when, when the game comes back. It'll, it'll come back here. So Georgia straightens up. Major League Baseball, because they took the game away, you know that one of the first places that they're going to bring that game uh, once the, the, the state uh, changes this law, they're going to come right back to Georgia. They didn't want to take it away. You know, so right. so then just think about how much money those people are going to make over there. And although I won't be making any of it with them, I'm going to applaud it, and I'm going to say, you know, you all deserve it, and I'm just so happy for you. But right yeah, now, and then, you I, know, you know it, I, I'm going to pray for you right now because I, I think you just need to be be strong. Right, and it's a win-win-win for baseball. I mean, they they – they they look on they on the right side of of righteousness um and they still will you know support Hank Aaron like you said um or um honor him they'll bring it back and then where you know they move to another uh, city to play it that city is excited so i i think pro sports in general and the the colleges of course they make a zillion dollars they they got it right. It's not about not playing. It's about playing in the midst of COVID. They got a template now, like you said. It's that's all that is corporate sponsorship and everything. They don't need butts in the seats anymore. It's just about if you got mm-hmm. you the, the corporate. Listen, I'm a Yankee fan, and the Yankees, the, the daddy would spend out of the wazoo 
the the kids are like, wait, we got the merchandising, we got MSG, we got this, that, and the other thing. We don't have to spend that much. And if we win, fine. If if we don't win, we still making money. So it's, I mean, the small markets do it all the time. I mean, it's a different subject, but I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's where you're you're right about how um, the sport in particular is going. Why? Pack it with sixty, where we can get forty in, get our corporate sponsors. We ain't got to worry about attendance. We still gonna make our money anyway. That's all the lovable losers have done anyway. They ain't try to win. They just want to get all the money they can from the corporate sponsors in the box seats and things. So, oh yeah, um, it, I mean, it'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know you are. That's why I had to drop that in because. Uh, you know, hopefully we're in last <laughs> we're in last place right now. <laughs> I know with with a horrible Boston Red Sox team, but but anyway, it's it's early. We'll <laughs> we'll we'll see what happens. One 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 final thing I have to, like I said to the audience. I mean, you write so much. You're an award winning author. You write on so many different topics. Please do let people know how they can follow you and and read your articles. And I know. We have some stuff, uh, of some of your stuff already posted at our website. Uh, you, um, you can follow me at haroldmichaelharvey.com. So it, everything I write eventually ends up over there. I do write for other um, uh, blogs or online publications, uh, but everything I write ends up at haroldmichaelharvey.com, uh, and, including the books that I've written. I've written five books, and they're all over there. Um, uh, there's a book on, on Negro League baseball uh, entitled The Duke of 18th and Vine, Bob Kendrick Pitches Negro League Baseball, which is a good book. And, of course, um, I had a 27-year-old neighbor, um, C.T. Vivian, who was a Bell of Freedom winner and civil rights icon, you know, strategize with Dr. King it worked right. primarily in the background. Uh right. he and I were neighbors for twenty seven years. He passed last year and so I wrote my yep. reflections of my C T Vivian story. That you can find that book there too. It's a it's a very interesting read because uh I we had the type of relationship where, you know, I could sit him down and just say, you know, what in the world was Martin Luther King thinking about when he did so and so? what was, what did he really mean when he said so and so? And so I get the backstory, and I write about uh, um, some of those backstories that he shared with me that, uh, you know, that he didn't necessarily talk about, um, you know, publicly. Um, but I but I think um, those stories are so in, important now, especially since he is gone, that that information really needs to be transferred from generation to generation so that a younger generation can learn from, uh, you know, what was inside of the head of such a great man. Um, and 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 the other three books that that I've written are you could also see those there. So that's how you can get in touch with me. You can follow me at Twitter at H Michael Harvey, and um, I think at uh, LinkedIn at Harold Michael Harvey. I, I no longer use um, Facebook, so I'm not on Facebook. You won't see me there. But yeah, but go to my blog HaroldMichaelHarvey.com. I, whenever I write something, it always ends up there and. There's just a ton of stuff there, information. Um, I, I think last week I wrote about the three times that I have avoided um, b- being killed by the police. Right. I pray that I don't have a fourth um, fourth encounter with law enforcement. But 
and, and my story is nothing new or unique. Uh, I I think if the if you got ten uh, black men and ten uh, black women in a room and you went around the room, uh, at, at least eighteen of them will have a similar story or stories uh, to to share. Um, you know, so but but it makes for interesting. And- uh, reading and and it also gives some insight. Uh, if you see how I overcame those, how I was able to prevent the law enforcement person from using the gun, um, you know, it just may be a lesson that you can share with your young people because, um, I mean, I, I've shared it with my son and and uh, he has had an encounter. In fact, last I know you got to go, but. Um, but last July, he decided he was going to take a trip across country. He lives in the Midwest, and he was going to go out to California to visit some friends. And so he got tested for COVID, and he was fine. And he got in his car, and he drove. Uh, he got. Um, he lives in Illinois. He lives in Chicago. And so right after he crossed over into Iowa, he had called. And my wife and I were having breakfast, and we're sitting there talking to him as he is beginning his journey, this this cross uh, uh, country journey. And and after he crossed the line, he says, "Oh, there's a state patrol sitting on the roadway." And I said, "Well, are you driving the speed limit?" He says, "Yeah, I'm at the speed limit." He says, "In fact, I'm under the speed limit." I said, "Well, you just hold it there." I said, "Well, what's uh, what's near you? Or what's ahead of you?" He says, there's a big truck. I said, well, stay behind the truck. He says, okay, fine. So he, he's hanging behind the truck, and he goes on down the road, and about five minutes later, he says, oh, yep, the guy uh, pulled out. And I says, he's following you? He says, oh, it doesn't seem like it. And, of course, he finally gets behind him, pulls him over. He says that in Iowa, it is against the law to be in the um, lane of the expressway uh, and, and travel under the speed under limit. the speed limit, yeah. Some states have yeah, it. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, he wasn't but, familiar with. But that he was. Rule, but, I'm sure he was being there. profiled, though. Hmm. Oh yeah, he was. And then the questions they asked, and we're just, you know, we're not talking, but we're just listening. And um, well, where are you going? Uh, going to, out to the west coast. Why are you going out there to visit some friends? Why are you going out there? Who, who are you going to stay with? Who am I going to stay with? What does that got to do with a traffic stop? For, for traveling five minutes, five miles under the speed limit, you know. So they asked all these questions just fishing. Um, mm-hmm. Well, where do you work? Uh, what do you do over there? I'm a reporter. Well, I've never seen you. Well, that's probably because there's very few sporting events this year. <laughs> it's COVID, man. But the, the thing is, they they went through the drill trying to find something or trying to needle him in a position where they could have observed uh, their their mastery over this black young man. And so it happens to all of us. But, you know, we've I shared those stories with him. I shared how I spoke to police officers and men in authority to prevent from being caught up in some of the situations that we read about and see on television. So that's a worthwhile read. It's free. Absolutely. And uh, you're not just a storyteller. You're telling, you're telling, you know, this 
from a historical standpoint. It's not just some, it's not, you know, fictional. It's, it's real, real stuff. And, um, listen, like I said, I can go on and on and with you and, um, we need to have these conversations more off air as well. But Mr. Harvey, I appreciate you, man. You be well, be safe. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for staying on as long as you have, and we'll be getting you on very, very soon. Thanks for having me, and you have a wonderful evening. You do the same. Thanks for sharing your audience. Thanks for sharing your audience yes. with me. Yes, sir. H. Michael Harvey, uh, um, publisher and award-winning author, uh, here on the Bassett News Radio Show on the Bassett News Radio Network. Stay tuned. <laughs> You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Mendel Rivers to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer Award Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nubs. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner. The revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on reports from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on a rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he had been saving for just the right occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so goddamn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally screwed Jane on Search for Tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Arm women liberationists and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, or Engelbert Humperdinck. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Welcome back to the show. It is the Bassa News Radio Show on the Bassa News Radio Network and our sister station, WCOM in Chapel Hill and, of course, WCLM in Richmond, Virginia now. We thank those affiliates for carrying uh, this broadcast. want to go to the phone, bring in my guest. He is the Senior Policy Program Manager at the Urban Institute. He is Zach Boren. And, Mr. Boren, it's a pleasure for you to come on. And, listen, I appreciate so much your patience on the line, sir. 
Hi, LA. Thanks for thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate being on the show and uh, getting the, a chance to talk to you about uh, about apprenticeships tonight. Absolutely. So, uh, first question to you is is what is uh, Apprenticeship 2000? Yeah, Apprenticeship 2000. Uh, it is a model for developing youth apprenticeships um, in North Carolina. It's an employer consortium model. Um, it was created in 1995 by four employers. Uh, Ameritech Dye and Mold was an American company. Uh, Blum, an, Austri- an Austrian company. Detweiler, a Swiss company. And Sarstedt, a German company. And what they did together is they transformed from being competitors in business to being collaborators to address talent shortages in the Charlotte area that they're really facing in manufacturing. Uh, for the employers, you know, it's a really great cost-effective model for, for recruiting young talent um, into their organizations to become mechatronics techs and uh, CNC operators and dye and mold um, operators as well. It's a, an enduring talent development strategy that they, that they developed. And for the apprentices, it, it really offers this rigorous, high-quality apprenticeship pathway that starts with uh, education in high school and culminates in receiving uh, a degree, an associate's degree from a local community college um, in mechatronics and receiving your certificate um, showing that you are proficient as a mechatronics tech. It's just a really, really exciting model and enduring one. It's a, as far as we're concerned, it's the, uh, the longest lasting youth apprenticeship model that we've found in the United States. So it's a win-win-win for all the partners involved, high schools, employers, colleges, uh, the apprentices, and really the state overall economically uh, benefits from having more people in good jobs. You know, one of the things in in reading uh, on this and and what you just expressed is the fact that you know, and I think this is uh, through the Department of Labor, um, is that this country kind of gets away or got away from um, apprenticeships, uh, especially in a sense that it is a win-win. Now it seems like corporate America is more about, um, you know, that, uh, that bottom line rather than doing it the way that we grew up where you you learn the trade you learn something a craft in high school you you took on um uh, a uh, apprenticeship at a, uh, a a local company you work your way through up by the time you graduated from college you had a job now it seems like companies don't want to work together to do that it seems like we've gotten away from that and i think economically and and the country as a whole in terms of how we we uh, uh, look at labor and look at people who work who have to do the work. Some people do the grunt work. Some people are, you know, the upper uh, management. We've gotten away from that, and I think that's really hurt the country. What's your thoughts? You know, I think uh, apprenticeship is really, you know, we've seen a big downside, especially in the in the Great Recession for apprenticeships. They slid all the way down to only about 375,000 apprenticeships across the country. And now we're talking about a boom in apprenticeships. What we've seen is um, about a 200% gain 
um, since the Great Recession wow. in apprenticeships. Um, and we're seeing it all over the country. You know, and not only are we seeing apprenticeships grow in the traditional trades, um, but we're seeing them grow in places that we don't expect them anymore, or we don't expect them to be. So, you know, here at Urban Institute, we are uh, an apprenticeship intermediary. So we're helping companies, uh, you know, like some some big tech firms, like Google, uh, start some of their uh, first, you know, apprenticeship programs they've met that they previously didn't have. Um, to do software development, to, to think about how do we train um, our IT specialists. So, you know, what, what we're really looking at is that overall across the country, because of the investment that the government is now making in apprenticeship, uh, it's really a rebirth. And, and we're excited to be a part of it here at Urban. We took a look at um, Apprenticeship 2000 which is an example of this apprenticeship consortia of, you know, four, uh, five, now six, seven, eight companies all coming together in the Charlotte area. That model has now expanded all over the state. So now we're looking at about 25 uh, youth apprenticeship consortia across the state, companies working with other companies to bring young people into these really good jobs like Mechatronics but also in healthcare and IT and in manufacturing um, and a lot of the jobs that, you know, used to require a four-year degree. And what companies are saying to us now is we can't really find the talent that we're looking for uh, from some of the community colleges from some of the four years. What we really need to do now is to grow our own. And I think this is a realization of, of really what's happened in the labor market. We have about 7 million open jobs. Um, even even despite the pandemic, we have really skilled labor that needs to be filled, and companies are are stepping up to the plate with apprenticeship and figuring out how to uh, develop these programs, really develop young people um, into their 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 into their talent pipeline. Mm. If you're just joining us, we'll talk with Zach Boren. He's the Senior Policy Program Manager at the Urban Institute, talking about apprentice, apprenticeships here on the Bachelor News Radio Show on uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network. Is, are some of the jobs, some of the apprenticeships um, with some of these companies sort of antiquated? Is it based on the, the, the state, the city, in terms of where you place these young people? I mean, I know manufacturing was, you know, big in Carolina. I don't know. I don't know the numbers if it's down or up, but you know, RTP is 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 grown uh, with tech jobs. You talk about Charlotte. So, is are some of these type of kind of outdated, and some of these companies need to redevelop themselves, or you're still finding um, places where you could place this young, these young great minds. Oh, really? I mean, I, I find apprenticeship to be more cutting edge and more industry-led than anything um, than, than what we see before. We have to see that, you know, if you're going to place someone into an apprenticeship, you really have to train them with 21st century skills in, in order to, to stay competitive. We see this, you know, really, you know, not just here in the United States, but with our competitors like Germany and Switzerland and the UK, they are all using apprenticeships to their advantage uh, with some of the biggest corporations um, to, stay, to stay competitive and to, to really 
um, develop their, their talent pipeline for jobs that are really hard to fill. So with Apprenticeship 2000, we're talking about this occupation called mechatronics. So it's really kind of thinking about electronics with mechanical engineering that we're combining into a four-year apprenticeship that really leads up, can lead up to an engineering degree. So we're talking about really, really cutting edge um, type, types of occupations where some of the machines they're working on are working on a split of a second to, to create a part. And those workers, these young workers, like we met Jordan um, at, at, uh, at um, Apprenticeship 2000, she is really thinking about how do I um, ensure that the machine I'm working on, this really high-tech machine, is going to turn out a product and a profit for her company called Blum. Um, and they're, you know, they're a multinational company, um, and they're located in the Charlotte area. And we find that across, you know, across North Carolina, we're seeing there are really fewer people working in, in manufacturing, but they're working in higher level, higher, um, higher skill jobs. And that's why we're really seeing companies turn to apprenticeship is because they need to develop their own because uh, these jobs have become really complicated and the talent that's coming out of the colleges um, is really not meeting the demand that, uh, that they need. So what is the um, apprenticeship uh, consortium how does that differ from other types of uh, apprenticeship programs? Yeah, it actually offers a lot of advantages. I mean, most, most folks really think about apprenticeships, they think, you know, possibly union, um, maybe in construction, like, uh, like welders, um, you know, we're going to have, uh, we're going to bring in uh, carpenters, electricians, HVAC techs, plumbers, you know, all these great occupations that, that people do generally in the trades, a lot of times with, with unions, maybe not so much in North Carolina since it's a low union-based state, but, you know, across the Northeast and across the Midwest, um, union apprenticeship is still really strong. Um, and, but we're, what we're seeing in North Carolina is something a little bit different where companies are coming together to figure out uh, the skill gap together. And it has a couple advantages. It's first, you know, for a small company, they may only need one or two apprentices. So it's, it's right. you know, can be cost prohibitive to bring in, um, you know, an apprentice. Some apprenticeship programs are spending as much as, um, you know, uh, as much as a, a quarter of a million dollars on training an apprentice. Um, Siemens is a great example of this, who's spending that amount including their wages to really create, um, you know, this really high caliber worker. If you're a small company, you're not going to be able to necessarily be able to front all that cost. So there's really shared resources. They go out and they recruit together. So Apprenticeship 2000 said, we four or five, six small companies, we're going to go out and recruit the best talent from, from local high schools. So we're not just being Detweiler and Ameritech Dianmold. We're Apprenticeship 2000, and we're creating this really uh, high-caliber reputation for our apprenticeship program. And so really, talk, what this consortium model does is it offers them, you know, a collective identity and credibility with the schools. I was going to ask, Sue, what are some of the, 
the downfall well not downfalls but uh, some of the 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 problems some of the programs face and some of the apprentices actually face my nephew I'm from Connecticut you know he's an electrician and he was really frustrated he I mean you have to you got you can't uh, wire somebody's house and it burns down so you have to have those times it took him 3 years to get through everything so do you see any of that frustration some of the programs that may have some bumps in the road yeah, certainly there are some some challenges in getting you know an apprenticeship program off the road uh, or off the ground. You also um, see where you know not every apprentice you bring on is going to turn out to be you know your professional electrician, your professional software developer. You're going to lose some along the way, and that's that's some of the that cost benefit that that um, is a trade off with doing an apprenticeship program. But overall, we see apprentices doing really well. They're really loyal. Uh, 94% of uh, apprentices who uh, complete in the uh, program are employed and often stay with their company. So there's this real return on investment. Um, We find in a study of South Carolina, uh, the University of South Carolina has found that the return on investment is really high for employers that that start an apprenticeship program. it's a dollar twenty-six for every dollar they invest. But along the way, you know, for for apprentices, you know, there is a challenge. You know, you're going to be starting at a little bit of a lower wage, um, but ultimately, you're going to reach that. You're going to reach middle-class wages much faster than you will, um, you know, going for a, a four-year degree. I mean, what we find is that apprentices are actually doing much better economically. They earn about $70,000 on average a year when they complete their apprenticeship program in comparison to their college counterparts who are only earning between fifty and 60000 a year. If you're just joining us, we talk with Zach Boren, a, a senior policy program manager at the Urban Institute here on the Bassett News Radio Show. Zach, I did get some questions, um, and one of which was going to be a question of mine. As a African-American uh, father, with two sons one says he wants to be a a a web developer but you know kids change their minds the other one's in high school really doesn't know he's athletic he likes history so we don't know but my question is how much of a reach is the urban institute doing with this program and and communities of colors maybe historically black colleges i know you mentioned south carolina there's south carolina state there how much of a reach goes out to those um, that, you know, in, in these urban areas that um, might have some, some young talent that uh, can help some companies? Yeah, um, absolutely right. We are really reaching out to uh, the black community, to, to other communities of color. It's really important that we, um, you know, make sure that apprenticeship works for, for everyone. Um, you know, in particular, we're working with South Carolina State, for example, to, to start one of their first um, apprenticeship programs in tech. So I don't want to get ahead, too far ahead of their announcement, but, you know, we're, we're excited to work with some of the HBCUs to, to really um, engage them in this model that can be so effective for people who, who are really looking to get attached to work um, and attached to really good jobs. Um, Especially in the tech industry, you talk about web developers. We see this as a key place where 
where a young person, instead of having to go and spend 100 or 200K at, at a college to be able to, to get into that field, they can potentially go do apprenticeship um, and get directly in. So companies like IBM, you know, Microsoft, Google, um, some of the biggest tech firms, um, and even some, some small firms. You know, we were working, um, for example, with a small one-person black-owned shop in, in Tampa that, uh, to develop their first apprenticeship program. Their first hire was going to be an apprentice. So we think it's, it's a, a tremendously good opportunity for, for a lot of people to get into a variety of different jobs. There's about there's about over there's over a thousand occupations to choose from. This is so fascinating. I just got a few more questions. If you if you can hang that, I'd, I'd appreciate that. I know we ran yeah. a little late. Um, the uh, what about the criteria um, for the company to get involved with Apprentice Apprenticeship 2000 with you guys? Um, and what what do the kids need to do? Uh, in high school, or what are you looking for, or, or do they reach out? How does it actually? How do they actually connect both the kids and the uh, companies? Yeah, so for for companies, it's really about taking a look and seeing what type of talent you have, you know, um, in your in your current company, and seeing really where it's hard to, to either keep talent um, to retain them into jobs, or places where you really have a hard time recruiting. Um, from from other places. I mean, I'll tell you, a lot of companies are telling me they can't poach talent anymore. They really need to. They really need to figure out how to create your own. Before, if you needed a welder, you could poach it from you know down the road, uh, from from you know local you know another local uh, welding company. That's not the case anymore. Um, the talent is really not there, and we need to figure out how to grow it. So. What a lot of companies do is they come to a place like Urban Institute. We help design um, an apprenticeship program for them, um, figuring out what, what occupations they really want to design. So we do the on-the-job training um, design with them, and then we connect them with, a, with an instruction provider. So that can be um, a local community college, for example, or even a high school. Um, so what we do is basically we design the program and then we have it recognized by the North Carolina um, Department of Community Colleges that recognizes um, uh, apprenticeships across the state. So there's like 12,000 uh, people who are doing apprenticeships today in North Carolina. Um, and if you're a young person and you're interested um, in finding out, you know, where, where can I find an apprenticeship? Um, there's a great website. It's run by the U.S. Department of Labor. It's called apprenticeship.gov. And you can go to apprenticeship.gov. There's lots of resources. You can see what are the types of jobs that companies are really uh, hiring for today. And then you can actually uh, put in your zip code and find out if there's an apprenticeship near you uh, to be able to apply for one. Um, and that's one of the best ways to do it. Um, the other way is to call the, the call the North Carolina Department of Community Colleges and find out um, what apprenticeship programs they have all across the state. Get connected to one of those local employers. Wow, that that's that's awesome. Of course, uh, this is this is all a business and personal information for me, uh, and I, and that's why I certainly appreciate this. Two two quick questions. Talk about some of the success stories. I know you mentioned one person, but uh, you can elaborate on that if you will. 
and you mentioned the pandemic. I, I can't imagine, but you guys have done it, um, how you maintain your stability in this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that we have. You know, it's certainly been a challenge. Um, I'll start off talking about some of the success stories. One of the success stories is during the pandemic. Um, We met um, Chris Stone. Um, He was uh, a former apprentice we interviewed in the case study. Uh, You can find it on urban.org if you want to take a read of what Apprenticeship 2000 is and jump in a little bit deeper. But he started his apprenticeship program when he was 16. And uh, he had a 4.0 GPA, felt like college just wasn't right for him. Since then, he's, he's graduated. He's employed at Blum in the Charlotte area where he did his apprenticeship. Uh, really looking back when, when he talks to us about his apprenticeship, he feel like, feels like he was really further ahead than his peer group. At 16, he was working with colleagues who were in their 40s and 50s. He said he learned so quickly to show them respect and really how to work with older people. And he learned also how to make great presentations and time management. And very importantly, he learned how to talk to customers. So along with some of those technical skills that he learned in becoming a mechatronics tech, Chris also learned that uh, some of those essential soft skills uh, he needed to be successful um, in in a professional setting. Uh, Chris was able to buy his first house right right out of his program. So we're talking about age 21 or 22. He had no college debt and already had four years of paid work under his belt. I'll tell you, I met another, uh, another guy at uh, Meritech Diamond while I was down there in, in, in Mooresville a few years ago. And this young man was age 22, was buying his second house out of debt, no, no college debt whatsoever, and getting married at the same time. I mean, compare that to what a lot of young people are facing after they finish college, they might be on your, they might be on your couch, they might be on grandma's couch, <laughs> they, they may not even be employed. And so this is just such a difference economically on what, what people are able to do. We met a fourth year apprentice during the pandemic that was really able to support uh, his whole family. Uh, his whole family were, were in other industries um, they all lost their, their employment, um, and he kept his employment um, as an apprentice uh, with Apprenticeship 2000. Was he really able to support his family uh, through a period of time where they did not have enough money to put food on the table or cover rent? Um, what we find is that apprenticeship is really a more stable field than what most teenagers get into, like hospitality um, and other low-wage minimum jobs. But these are really higher-level wages and higher-level opportunities that come along with them. You know, the final question for you came from Kim um, in uh, Raleigh, actually, and she asked, what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, Apprentice 2000 um, faced in the beginning and now? Um, And she also asked, uh, was it um, tough to get some of the bigger corporations? I know you mentioned Google and IBM. To, to kind of sign on and, and get on board with this, to, to, to forget about the profits, just come together as, as companies and, and, and do the right thing. Yeah, so Apprenticeship 2000, I, you know, when we talked to, talk to all the managers, 
who are currently leading that, that effort. And really the tougher part was really about getting to a collective vision. Um, that was some of the challenge in getting other companies to, to come on. They're really running a, a high quality apprenticeship program. So this is a program that takes four years to get your, at the end of the day, your professional who completes it. So there's, there's some cost that goes along with this. There's you know kind of this long-term vision. And if you're a company that really needs your talent tomorrow, um, you know, apprenticeship 2000, uh, an apprenticeship program isn't going to be able to deliver that in a matter of weeks. It's really thinking about a long-term vision. Of where, where do we want to take our company in five years, in 10 years? It's really kind of changing that mindset that a lot of Americans are in, this kind of short-termism of, we need to make profit for next next week or next quarter, next year into we need a strategy for developing our company 10 years from now. And so I think that's really the challenge is kind of changing that mindset of American business to really think about a, a, a longer term trajectory for where they want to go. Great point. Um, before you go, let people know, I know it's urban.org, but uh, please do give out all the information. I thank you for coming on. This has been uh, worth the time, and certainly I, I'd love to have you back to talk some more about it. But if you can give out your information, that uh, we appreciate it. L.A., I would always be glad to come back and um, come visit. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can come to uh, urban.org or urban.org backslash YA uh, for youth apprenticeship. Um, that's our youth apprenticeship website, and you can come find all the su success stories from our apprentices and from our companies there, and feel free to hit me up on Twitter. And what's your Twitter handle? I'm Zach underscore Boren. Zach, uh, listen, I appreciate the time. Like I said, this was information for um, our audience. Uh, there are a lot of parents out there and and you know with everything has been going on in the climate and worrying about this talent and this talent you know young minds still trying to figure things out this is definitely a great thing is very refreshing very informative and i think like you said in the beginning of this interview it's a win-win-win i mean everybody wins with this apprenticeship and, and i thank you so much I, I'll, I'll reschedule with you again and you be well. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ellie. Appreciate it.